thank you for taking the time to listen to this life-changing message from the ministry of Faith Bible Chapel. We hope this message will encourage you in all parts of your life. At the end of this message, you will hear more information on how to contact our church family, as well as directions for you to visit us for any of our worship services. Until then, join us for the service in progress. We're going to talk about another lesser-known Bible character out of the book of Judges, Ahud, or Ahu. When I first looked at the word, that's kind of how my response to it was, Ahu, it's, but it's pronounced Ahud. And we're going to talk about Ahud. We find the story um, unfolding in Judges chapter 3. Let me give you the setting where Judges fits in historically to everything. Moses had led the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. He spent 40 years in the wilderness, leading them to the brink of the promised land. Uh, wanted to go into the promised land, but we know because of lack of faith and unbelief, the children of Israel, ones who murmured and complained, they actually died in the wilderness. But the promise was still true. God made the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he was going to be faithful to his promise. And now it was Joshua. Joshua takes the place of Moses, and now it's his responsibility to take them over the Jordan River into the promised land, the land that is known as the land of Israel today. Twelve tribes, the land was to be divided into twelve sections. And uh, Joshua led them in, had some great victories. God was with them all the way. And during that time, overall, they kept their eyes on God. Uh, they were instructed by God. They were led by God. They had some great victories. But after Joshua passed away, he was 110 years old, and now we enter into a period of time which is called the time of the Judges. And you'll find the book of Judges right after Joshua. So we enter into a period of Judges. And we're going to talk about the second judge of Israel at that time, and his name was Ahud. And uh, there's some characteristics, there's some qualities of his characters, there's some lessons that we can learn each and every one of us as we did on Hagar. And I have to tell you, I'm being challenged with each one of these messages myself. And uh, I encourage you, maybe throughout the summer, look for some lesser known Bible characters as you read and then kind of do a little bit of study on those. Google some of it. You'll find out some information about it. We have so much technology available to us. But the time of Judges was a time of ups and downs in the relationship with the Lord. Uh, they would serve God, and then they'd drift away from God. The result of their drifting away from God, the enemy would come in, take advantage, and they'd become slaves to their enemies that surrounded their country. They would cry out to God. They would repent. God would send a deliverer. They would come back into a better relationship. But the thing you need to note in the book of Judges, that because they did evil in the sight of the Lord and drifted away, each and every time it got harder and harder to come back to the Lord. Now, that could be one of our points. It's kind of one of our points. Listen, we don't want to play games with God. I don't want to play games in my relationship with God. My God's a loving God. He's a God of mercy, grace that He's poured out abundantly in my life. So I don't want to take advantage of that. I don't want to take that relationship for granted. And, uh, but 
what can happen is that we begin to drift, then it gets harder the next time and harder the next time. By the end of the book of Judges, the people were kind of far from God. But we'll talk about that a little bit now. So that's kind of a, a, a brief historical background. Now let me read. I want to read Judges chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 12 through 30. So if you can follow along, you'll, here's the story as it told to us in the Bible, okay? Judges chapter 3 and verse 12. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Iglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered himself the people of Amnon, Amalek, and went and defeated Israel. They took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was a double-edged and about a cubit in length, or 18 inches. He fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. When he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. This is Ehud addressing King Eglon. He said, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in the cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he rose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into, the, into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. That's a great scene, isn't it? For he did not draw the dagger out of his belly. His entrails came out. Then Ehud went out to the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they, they waited until they were embarrassed. And still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and they opened the doors, and there was their master, fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed, passed beyond the stone images, and escaped to Syria. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. Then he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone 
to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. So Moab subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and and the land had its rest for 80 years. So it was a great victory. Let me give you a kind of a brief synopsis, and then I want to give you a couple lessons that I think we gained from this story. They did evil. As a result of doing evil, like what happens all the time, is that you kind of crack the door for the enemy to get into your life or into the whole nation. They became vulnerable because they had turned their hearts and their eyes away from the Lord. Moab, who has been a a country to the east side of Israel, had always been an enemy of Israel. In other words, they were always looking for an opportunity to come sweeping down and take advantage of their disadvantage. Well, they were at a disadvantage. Eglon was the king of Moab. He had come. He had taken control of the land. He had set up headquarters in and around the city of Palms, which is Jericho, even to this day. They cried out. God heard their cry. Ehud was a left-handed from the tribe of Benjamin. He took a sword, we're told, it was 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right side. And we also know that Eglon, who was the king, was a very fat man, as we read. Now, when the enemy would come into the land, there was a tribute that had to be paid. In other words, a high tax had to be paid, whether it was done on a regular basis, and this was one of the times when a tribute was to be given. Maybe this was a special tribute. We're not told that. But Ehud came forth and said he would take the tribute down. But he said while he was down there, I have a secret message from God. So not only to give the tribute, but he had a secret message from God. You know what the message was? A sword. (laughs) He took the sword, he plunged it into his stomach, and it came out his back. Ehud could not pull the blade out because the fat had closed in around the sword. So it remained there. Uh, He fled. He locked the door and he fled. The servants waited a while thinking maybe some other things were happening a long time, and then they opened the door and they found him dead. In the meantime, Ehud had escaped out of the area, he came to the Mount of Ephraim, took a trumpet, which was a call to war normally. He blew the trumpet and rallied Israel against Moab. He said, follow me. The Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. Now, Israel gathered at the River Jordan. Well, the Moabites, 10,000 of them, were trying to go back to their land, which was on the east side. They cut them off and killed 10,000 stout men of war, men who had oppressed them for 18 years. And then there was a time of peace for 80 years. What was it about this Ehud? that made him a man that would rally the troops of Israel, that he took leadership. Because as you're going to see in just a moment, he's not the likely candidate for that. Four things I think we can derive from this story. Number one, and simply put it down, I'll explain it, drive them all out. 
and drive them all out. When the children of Israel were moving into the promised land, one of the instructive words that God gave to the children or the warriors of Israel was this. When you go into the land, it's occupied by pagan worshipers. And I want you to drive them out. Drive them all out. Don't leave them behind. Don't coexist with them. Don't compromise with them. Drive them all out. And you occupy the land. Uh, tear down their high places. Tear down all their idols. Actually, if you remember, this was the call that was on Israel. Israel was to be a light to the rest of the nations. They were called to be the worshipers of the one true God. Up until Abraham's time, the majority, the masses, worshiped idols, pagans, stones and, uh, made of wood and all kind of gods they worshiped. But God was bringing a testimony of his own presence through the nation of Israel. So this was their call. And then he said in verse 35 of Numbers here, but if you do not drive them out, listen carefully to this, the inhabitants of the land before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Man, this is so true. It wasn't only true then, but I want you to kind of bring this up to date. Bring this up to the time that we live in. Listen, you can't coexist with your enemy. You can't compromise with your enemy. You'll end up being defeated by your enemy. And God knew this. God didn't tell him to go in and share the land or coexist or compromise with them. He said, drive them out. He said, if you don't, you're going to have problems. And that's exactly what happened. If you track through the book of Judges, you'll find out over and over again, every 12, 12 tribes, it says tribe of Benjamin didn't drive them all out. Tribe of Ephraim didn't drive them all out. Naphtali didn't drive them all out. Judah didn't drive them all out. The result of it, they became irritants. They harassed them over and over again. And the same thing true in our life. And when you come into a relationship with the Lord, the best thing you can do is cut all ties with darkness. Cut all ties with sin, with the flesh. Don't compromise. Don't try to coexist. Don't try to have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. It doesn't work. And unfortunately, a lot of people think that a Christian walk maybe can be that way. But I tell you from experience, and I tell you from not just personal experience, but experience of, of talking to so many people, it ends up biting you. You can't get away with it. It doesn't work. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Notice these words. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial or the devil? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of God. If you're a believer, you're a temple of God. God's Spirit dwells inside of you. And there's no, there should be no compromise in that. Now let me make something very clear here. This does not mean that we're not to have fellowship with unbelievers. 
This does not mean that we shouldn't take advantage of every opportunity to get with unbelievers and be the light. Share our faith when we have opportunity. Show, show them by our works they can glorify God or be pointed by the one true God. So it doesn't mean that. Listen, if there's a block party happening, I'm not going to go out and say, okay, all believers come over here and I'll, I'll kind of have a hot dog with you, but I'm not going to have a hot dog with these other unbeliever pagans. <laughs> That's not what it means at all. doesn't mean we're to pick up all our stakes and move to some cave in the mountains and become a monk or anything like that. That's not what God's called us to. He's called us to be a light in the midst of darkness. He's called us to share God's love. And, and that, you have to use wisdom when you do that. That doesn't mean you come on with gangbusters. I remember when I was first saved, one of the biggest mistakes I ever made. When I got saved, I, like I said earlier, I, I came alive. And the first thing I did, I went to my family and told them they were pagan worshipers. Now, how many know that didn't go over so well? It took me years to mend that fence. It took me years to pick up, make up that ground that I stupidly made a mistake in doing it. The youngness that I had, I, I was excited about. No, you use wisdom. You, you, you use opportunity. I mean, share your love. Share the grace of God. And then when the opportunity is there, hey, listen, you know what they're going to do? They're going to begin to ask you, what, what is it about your life? And then you have an opportunity to to share. But it does mean this. Don't cross the line. Don't cross the line. In other words, don't let the darkness influence you. You influence the darkness. You turn the darkness into light. Don't let darkness turn your light into darkness. The second thing about this. you got to be willing to confront areas of sin and the flesh in our lives. Willing to confront areas of sin and darkness in our life. Do you know why? Sin can grow real obese. It can become ugly. The flesh can become ugly. And you know, so many people get caught in trying to justify, trying to paint it in pretty colors. Listen, you can't minimize the harmful effects of sin in your life. There are consequences of sin. It's not that God is ever trying to deny us anything. God doesn't try to deny us anything. Matter of fact, He wants to freely give us all things through Christ. He wants us to live free of not only shame and guilt, but to benefit from all the blessings of God. So for us, the enemy would have us to believe that God's taking something from us. In all reality, God is giving us something. His benefits that He gives to all of us. So you've got to face it. Face it head on. Whether it's sin in your life, some area of compromise, some area of just kind of fooling around with that sin. Eighteen years they suffered in slavery because of falling away from the Lord. They were ashamed to face it probably. Sometimes we feel that we're going to lose something. You know, misery becomes comfortable. Even our bondage becomes more comfortable than just taking that step to be free. Sin makes us miserable, robs us of our joy and of our well-being. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, stand fast. Say that with me. 
Stand fast. Stand fast in what? Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Why go back? Second Peter chapter 2, verse 22, verses leading up to it even. For if after they escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse than the beginning. Interesting. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Notice what it says here. It's like a dog returning to his own vomit. Or it's like a sow having washed into her, her wallowing, back and wallowing in the mire of the mud again. It really doesn't make sense, but we do it. Thirdly, concerning Ehud in this situation, you have to see how valuable we are in God's eyes. How valuable we are in God's eyes. Now, Ehud, note here, he was left-handed. You know, anytime the Bible kind of kind of makes a point of something, you ought to look into it. In other words, what was the point of saying he was left-handed? There was a reason. The literal translation here is not only that he was left-handed. There are many people who are left-handed. My wife is left-handed. She says she's special because she's left-handed. No, but, but she was left-handed. But the literal translation means he was hindered in his right hand. So he was not only left-handed. The reason he was left-handed because he was hindered with his right hand. There was something wrong with his right hand. He put the sword, note, it, the detail given, he put the sword under his outer cloth on his right thigh. Normally, you put the sword on your left side, so when you draw the sword, it's easy. You just pull it out. But he put it on his left side. Why? Because his right hand was hindered somehow, whether it didn't work at all or work partly. So he, he could pull with his left hand. So he had some weakness, some physical limitation that he had. It was either hard or he couldn't use his right hand. So Ehud becomes an unlikely hero because in the world's eyes and views, he's a handicapped person. He has limitations. He's not going to be able to do what other people do. You know what I found? That is absolutely false. That people's limitations could be their greatest advantages. Whether you think you're uneducated, or that you can't articulate well, you haven't grown up in the right family, or have some physical handicap, or you're slow to speech. You know, Moses was slow to speech. He certainly wasn't hindered in doing what God called him to do. Paul had some kind of physical infirmity that he cried to God three times, God, could you deliver me from this? You know what God said? My grace is sufficient. He said, because I am strong when you are weak. Listen to all of that over and over again. So he's unlikely, Harold. He's not well known. He's handicapped in a way. You would say he's an underdog. Uh, obscure in the world's eyes, but yet a man that God chose. Interesting. Ehud 
himself, and so many in this room even. We could easily doubt our value, our value to God, our value to society, our value to our friends, our value to our family. It could go on and on, you know, and there's an enemy right there to just kind of magnify that over and over again in your mind. And we pull back. He could have said no to being the envoy of going down there. He could have come up with all kinds of excuses. Now, here's the thought. I want you to think about that. Is it possible that his handicap put Eglon, the king of Moab, off guard? Is it possible that being there, because you would think that the king came, here was the enemy that was in his house. Why would the enemy dismiss his servants except that they would have thought, he can't do much? What could he do? He's handicapped. He doesn't have an advantage at all. They didn't know he had this 18-inch blade underneath his cloth. He didn't know that their fat boss was about to get it. No. But all they saw, yeah, you know, maybe it was the advantage that God used that advantage to win a victory for the next 80 years. Could it be that whatever you think is your limitation today might be the greatest advantage for the kingdom of God? That God could use you. Oh, I'm too young. I'm too old. I won't say anything else. I'm too this, I'm too that. I have these limitations. But yet, you see, in God's eyes, are no limitations, absolutely none whatsoever. Ehud accepted, and he rested in his value. First Corinthians chapter one and verse thirty. Listen to these words carefully. But God has chosen what the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. He has chosen the weak things of the world, to put to shame the things which are mighty, the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh, get this, no flesh should glory in his presence. That no flesh should glory in his presence. You know what I, I think the greatest problem to someone being successful? It's not a handicap like we've been mentioning, but it's pride. Is to think that you don't have a handicap. Is to think that you have it all together. I can't tell you the number of young men and women, mostly men, that stood before me, articulate, bright, good-looking, strapping, had all the advantages in the world. I can't tell you how many of them I've watched fall by the wayside and not make it. And I can't tell you how many humble people have made it and are in good standing with the Lord today. It happens over and over and over and over again. Pride comes before a fall. Could blame your family background. Could blame that you feel so ordinary. You're not educated. You know, here's the amazing thing that God can take each one of us from our different backgrounds, from our, our different talents, our gifts, and he molds us uniquely into being a representation of all that God is. It really is something. I think God, and when I was writing this down, I, I almost got a picture of God 
just so pleased and so excited about how he wants to use us. And all our uniqueness and all our differences, how excited he, he, he is about seeing it work out and all of us working together for the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, in Isaiah 62, 5, it says, God rejoices over us. He rejoices over those victories. You know, just one person in here, one young person, one older person, middle-aged person, man or woman, doesn't really matter. One parent can influence and change a whole family. One person can change your job situation. One person can change your neighborhood. It is amazing just what one person can do. You know, times aren't much different than the time of Judges. We can't say that we're doing right in the sight of God, can we? Not even here in America. It's unfortunate. We need that one person. We need that person to step up without looking at any limitations, but seeing how valuable they really are and how important they are. You know the story maybe, but I read it again this week. A little boy was hurt as he's walking through the field. As he leaves his house, he has his ball cap on, he has his bat, he has his glove, he has a ball, and he's, he's throwing the ball up in the air. He said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. He swings at the ball, misses, strike one. Walking along, he throws the ball. He said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. He swings at that with all his might. He misses, strike two. He's walking along a little further. He throws the ball in the air. He swings at it really hard this time. He misses, strike three. Next thing you hear him saying, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. <laughs> and he goes on down the road. Listen, if every one of us had that attitude, you know, that no matter who you are, you are valuable. Let me tell you what puts a value on something. It's what you pay for it. Isn't that true? It's what you pay for it. Look at this verse. Jesus paid the price. You were bought with the price. How valuable is every human being to God that he would give his son? God paid the greatest ultimate price, his life, so that you could have life. That's how valuable you are. Last one, step up and step out. It's what Ehud did. He had an unreserved faith, something about him, an unreserved faith and recognition of the ability and resources of God. Something probably plagued him. The enemy probably whispered in my ear, you don't have the ability. You can't do it. You are limited. You know, let the other men go out. You stay at home, da-da, 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 and all over and over and over again. But somehow he had an unreserved faith. He thought, I can do this. Matter of fact, I will do it. He had to step up, though, and step out to do it. When he stepped up and said, I'll go down there, I mean, he was taking his life in his hand. He stepped up, I can do this. He goes out and he does it. He goes back, what does he say? He said, I have a message, secret message from God for you. You know what that message was? A sword. The message was the sword, and we have the sword of God's Spirit. He said to Israel, follow me. But he didn't stop there. He wasn't taking it all upon himself. He said, follow me. He said, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. 
He said, I'll take the lead. I'll, I'll go out there. I'll be a leader. And there's always someone that's going to lead. But he said, the credit's going to go. Where are the benefits of it? The enemy is going to be given over to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, it says that, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. I heard this somewhere, so I put it down. I believe this is the correct quote, or this is a good one I made up. People are always aiming to do something. Stop aiming, pull the trigger. I aim to do this. I'm aiming to get to that. I aim to do that. Listen, you got to come to the point where you stop aiming and just pull the trigger. In the book of James, chapter 2, it says, If people say they have faith, but do nothing, the faith is worth nothing. Of course, that's from a modern translation. Your faith is worth nothing. You stand with me, please. We hope that this message has spoken something personal to you. If you would like more information about our church family or service times, please call us at 303-424-2121 or visit us at our website, www.fbci.org. Faith Bible Chapel currently meets in our Family Worship Center, located on the corner of 62nd Avenue and Ward Road.